We are uh, in the last um, formal week of our mission conference, although missions is an ongoing thing, right? But this morning we're blessed to have with us um, Jason Shuring um, and his uh, family as well. I'm glad to have all of you here as well, and Christina had a chance to meet her this morning, so just tremendous. So, Jason, would you come on up and share with us? And let's welcome them. hear me? All right. Uh, In preparation for today, I brought a few notes. There's some things I wanted to say. Um, How many of you guys were here the last time I spoke in 2017? Go ahead and raise your hands. Awesome. Great. So you'll remember uh, one of the things I did last time, I printed off a ginormous list of all of the unreached people groups in the world. There's over 6,000 of them. So those are people who have no access to the gospel or no Christian initiative to reach them. And so what we did last time is we passed this list around, and each person would pray for one, and we tried to see how far we got. But since COVID, it didn't seem to be wise to have everyone touching the same piece of paper, licking it as we flip our pages. So um, that accounts for a good two-thirds of my notes. Uh, (laughs) Remaining here, I have around 40 pages. Uh, Luckily for you, uh, most of them are just pictures. Uh, For example, the first page just says intro. So uh, no doubt we'll be out of here by 1 o'clock today. Um, Go ahead and show the first slide. Let's get up there. All right. Um, It is a privilege to be back here. It really is a privilege. Uh, Rehoboth has come to have a special place in our hearts. Um, Someone was saying that you guys aspire to be a missional church. And uh, we actually brag about your church when we talk to other missionaries. Uh, We have the opportunity to speak in a lot of churches. And so what we've come to see you guys exemplify is what we would call a missional church. Uh, You guys have been involved financially through prayer. You guys sent a work team down to our group, um, our work in 2016. Uh, You guys won't stop sending Tom and Patty down. They've already come six times. So... Um, No, but we we really are uh, privileged to be here uh, and share just a little bit of what God is doing. Uh, So Christina and I, we are missionaries in Brazil. I want to recap just a little bit of who we are, what our work is, just in case anyone wasn't here. But uh, I don't even remember what I spoke to you guys last time, so no doubt it will be good to understand the context of uh, the majority of what I want to say. So Christina and I, we are tribal church planting missionaries. We have been in Brazil since 2015. My parents were missionaries there, and Christina's parents were missionaries there. So we grew up in the missionary world. Uh, We are a part of a greater team of missionaries that works to plant a tribal church in the YMP people group. We have been there for five years. The organization we work with is called Ethnos 360, formerly New Tribes Mission. Um, They do very similar things to what Sim does. You guys heard from Mark Bosher last weekend. So uh, COVID-19, we were there up until April, and then we decided to come back on our furlough or missionary time in the U.S. early because COVID was affecting the ministry there. And since we wanted to get back to um, having a ministry there sooner, once all of this is over, we decided, why don't we just take our furlough time now? since everything's on pause anyways. So that's how we've got back here in April. 
um, and we plan to return to Brazil in February of 2021. So that's when our ministry will continue there. So who are the YMB people? They are a very primitive people. Um, missionaries arrived there in the early 80s after contact had been made with these people in the late 70s. So originally the missionaries went in um, by the government's request in order to be uh, medical representatives as well as learning the language so that a dialogue could be established. So early missionaries went there to learn their language and culture and uh, help out with medicine. However, uh, indigenous politics in Brazil is really complicated and the government ended up removing the missionaries in 96. Uh, luckily, there was a location nearby that was off the reservation and in 97 they constructed another missionary base and that is where Christina and I work out of. It's just outside of the Indian reservation, about 150 miles directly into the jungle. Uh, so the only ways to get there is by vehicle and then eventually by boat. So the YMP people, they have a population of around 1,600 that we have access to. There's about another 400 in French Guiana. They are a semi-nomadic people group, so they will have many homes. They'll have a home and a farm here and a home and a farm there, and they'll travel in between their houses seasonally, uh, depending on how much uh, game is in the area or whether their farms have run out. Uh, it's basic subsistence living which means that you're doing all of your activities just to survive. They have little to no education, um, and the New Testament, uh, praise the Lord, was presented and distributed in 2016. So we came on the scene in 2015 after that had happened. So how do we get there? From here, uh, here we have the state of Michigan. In the United States, population of 300-some million, we travel all the way to Brazil, which is larger than continental United States, with Texas thrown in twice, um, and it's a population of 200 million. Most people live along the coast. Then we come to our state, the state of Amapá, which is roughly the size of Georgia, however only has the population of the city of Detroit, around 700,000. Then eventually you come to our base with a population of around 10 people. So that's how you would get there. The process, we go from the capital of Macapá, we go on dirt roads. Uh, the quality of the roads depends on the season. It's either really dusty in dry season or really wet and sloshy in rainy season, um, which presents a big uh, ongoing problem for the maintenance of our trucks. Um, these videos make it look pretty miserable, uh, which a lot of times it is. Um, however, it is actually very pretty as well uh, to me. It can be very scenic. Uh, you get the, like the low-lying clouds uh, with the greenery and the, uh, the clay and the sunsets. It's, it's very pretty. Uh, however, most of the times, if I'm honest, I'm not paying attention to the scenery. I'm just hoping that everything stays in the truck, um, which there's too many times not everything made it. Uh, the river trip can also be very scenic. Um, you know how they say you should stop to smell the roses in life. Uh, however, in the jungle, there's no roses, there's only the thorns. Um, so <laughs> uh, we do have the scenery there. However, like on the road and the river, I'm mostly paying attention to keeping everything in the boats um, and making sure everyone arrives, uh, animals, babies, and spouses included. Uh, that is when you can see, uh, after a long day's work, sometimes you end up making the trip in the dark. 
and you can ask Patty how she feels about that. <laughs> so what is the church planning process in a tribal location in the middle of the jungle? The, um, the first step is uh, making contact, uh, establishing relationships, and you do that by learning their language and culture. And every location is different. Some cultures and languages are exclusively oral. So you have nothing to go on. You have to come in and just start pointing to things. And someone says something, and you know you assume that's what it meant. And later you find out they were talking about something totally else. And so those embarrassing moments uh, create relationships. So language and learning, um, language and culture learning is a long process. In some places, it can take over a decade because you have missionaries having medical problems. So it's a very long process. Then you get to translation. You want to teach them God's word, so you have to translate the Bible in order for them to understand you are basing this off of something other than yourself. Otherwise, I mean, what are they to believe your word over their, their experience? So we see scripture as the authority of God, and so that's what we preach from. The translation process is long and pretty much never-ending. The first draft of a translation almost always takes at least 10 years to produce. So surviving in the jungle for 10-some years after however long it took to learn their language and culture, very long process. Then you get to evangelization. Now you have scripture from which you can teach. Uh, so you use the scripture in your lessons in order to evangelize and teach. Um, depending on the population or the strategic pe group of people that you're trying to reach, that can take several years as well. Then you have believers, so you start discipling them, um, applying the truth in their life, walking with them day by day. And that is from when you start evangelization, discipleship continues until the day you leave. That's an ongoing process. Then you get believers who want to reach their own. And so you start equipping them. They are an oral culture, so how are they going to transmit tons of information? You know, the hundreds of pages I have here, it doesn't work for them. So what do you do for them? And it's a long process. Some of them will be educated. Some of them won't. And so getting them to be able to transmit, relay the truths that they have come to believe is a process that the missionaries are involved in. Then you come into more translation again. The first rough draft of the translation is a very, very rough draft. The example that I like to use is, let's say for some reason you guys had a need for a translation. And so Pastor Kevin um, asks everyone in the congregation, um, we need a translation. Who is willing to help out with the translation? And, of course, you know, not very many people have translation experience, and, you know, it's going to take a, a very long commitment. And you have an immigrant from China sitting in the back pew, and he says he's willing. He raises his hand. He says, I'll translate. So he begins to learn how to translate. You know, he's from China. He doesn't speak English natively. It's his second language. And uh, so he starts the translation progress process. He is going to be translating from one language to English, right? So he's going to need help from other people. He's going to have a team of people helping him contextualize the information. And the only team of people that's available for him to use is a Mexican family. Um, also, English is their second language. And so the Chinese immigrant and the Mexican immigrants are going to translate from their experience and their language into English. Is that going to be the version that you use for your daily devotional? It's a rough draft. The first translation is a rough draft. 
And so what we talk about when we say more translation is involving the indigenous believers. Let's have them produce a translation because it's going to be so much more contextually applicable to them, you know, to their culture, their situation. And the language is just going to flow better out of their mouths than out of ours. And, of course, more discipleship. It's a process all along the way. We're talking, you know, these things take place over a timeline of years and sometimes decades. And so people come and go along the way. And so you're constantly uh, discipling. And, Lord willing, you end up with a church plant at the end that is not dependent on missionaries. Missionaries don't enjoy living in the jungle far away from their family, from their culture. And so we want to get in and out as fast as possible. The believers in that location are going to reach their own people far faster than I ever will. So our goal is to see that they're trained and equipped with the scripture to reach their own. So since our last visit, uh, 2017, quite a bit of the people here uh, remember it. Uh, So you'll remember that we were raising funds for specific projects. Uh, One of the projects was a translation office, and the other was for a health outpost. Uh, The Tukunodoy's translation office is something that we are continuing to build. It's an ongoing um, project, and so is the Sapukaya Health Outpost. The Sapukaya Health Outpost is something we're already using. So this picture was taken a while back. Um, It's basically just a big barn, uh, and it has a few walls in it now. And the purpose of that location, the purpose is it is a midpoint on the river system in between a large population center and our base. And so whenever they have medical emergencies, they have to make sometimes multi-day trips all the way down to us in order to diagnose malaria. And it's something that they can do in their own villages if they were trained to do. So this is the first step in that process of we want to put a lab there where they can diagnose malaria and uh, have much faster treatment. That's the trick with malaria is diagnosing it and treating it quickly. So that place is already being used. It's also kind of a traveler's lodge for that big population of people in Abuerita that come downriver. Um, the village that this is at is a, um, some believer friends of ours village. And inevitably what happens is since the believers have now taken a stance different than the rest of their culture, they are persecuted. And so when you get tons of travelers coming to your village, they just raid and ransack everything. So this family has been robbed from, their farm gets, you know, just everything stripped out of it. And so this is an attempt to decentralize their specific home from all of the travelers. And uh, it has been used extensively since then, as well as basic medical, like you can see in that picture. And uh, Rehoboth was involved in raising the funds for this construction. Then we have the translation office. We were here at the end of 2017 and 2018. We broke ground and started building the structure. In 2019, we actually started using it in about August. And so the purpose of this structure is to facilitate the future translation. Can you imagine the indigenous who live in, you know, thatch roof huts with their little notebook on the dirt? You know, and that was the situation we were continually finding ourselves in. All these stack of papers with all the kids touching it and, you know, rain and all of that. It just wasn't a conducive environment for intensive work. And so we wanted to centralize that work in a location they can access and leave their materials there. And so that's the long-term goal for that. Uh, since uh, we finished the, the walls and the roof, we've used it seven times. Our goal 
was to have seminars, translation seminars, uh, every single month. And we were doing that up until COVID started. So what are we doing there? Basically, we're teaching them grammar. We're teaching them their own language, and we're teaching them uh, Portuguese so that they can translate from Portuguese into their native tongue. And so that's a very, very fun process. Uh, most of them have graduated through sixth grade, but literacy, their literacy level is way less. You know, you'd expect you know, a third grader to be able to read and comprehend, but they're not quite there yet. So it is a very, very long process that we're talking about when we expect them to be able to translate. Another exciting thing that is uh, new since 2017 are women's meetings. And uh, normally my wife would be up here, but we have two kids, and we've been raising them in the jungle, and they are chaos. So um, <laughs> our youngest does not take well to strangers. So um, I'll relate the part that is uh, closest to her heart, which is these women's meetings. Um, so the missionaries got there early 80s. In the indigenous culture, it's inappropriate for men to spend any significant amount of time with women. So while the missionaries teach you know, a mixed population, you can't do discipleship. And so not intentionally, but you know, along the way, the women have been left out of a lot of our strategic teaching and discipleship. And so when my wife got there, she really wanted to change that. And so she started doing meetings. Uh, initially, it was just prayer. Um, or she would just be reading the Bible because my wife was in the process of learning the language and culture as well. And so she started doing it. Eventually, all the missionary wives who were also in the same boat as her, you know, trying to learn the language, they all jumped in. And uh, we started doing these bigger meetings. Um, and they have become an immense, immense blessing to the YMP population. Women who are very marginalized. This is a patriarchal society. Women are basically treated like slaves there. Now something specifically targeted towards their emotional and psychological health. It's been immensely, immensely um, successful in terms of how many people come to it. Uh, I usually do all the logistics for these meetings, and so that means transporting people on the river from a village way upstream down onto the road. And so I'm just involved in a little portion of it. So generally when we pick up, you know, two boatfuls of ladies and we're going down, everyone's stoic, no one's smiling. And the only time I see these women smiling is after these meetings. And so it's just so telling to how, you know, the gospel speaks to the soul. And so these have been um, something that we're really excited about strategically planting a church. We tend to want to target the primary influencers in a community, such as a chief, or in this case, a patriarchal society, the men. And we're very quickly waking up to the realization that it's the women who stay at home. It's the women who have more influence over the behavior of their kids. And so actually looking at it from a perspective of, do we want you know, healthy families in this church? We have to gear our attention towards the women. And so this is, it's been a process of discovery uh, for us, and it's been really, really fantastic. Uh, one of the things Christina does is since we're in Grand Central Station on the river, the communities up river, wherever they go, they're going to stop at our base. And so we're always hosting people. So Christina will be recapping the last woman's meeting with them or just doing basic prayer with them. And that's been incredibly 
uh, encouraging and um, very proud of the progress that my wife has made um, raising two kids in the jungle and doing all of this ministry. Uh, we are continuing to record the gospel into audio. Uh, most of them are illiterate, so recording into audio is the primary way that they can understand the information uh, from, uh, from a mental process. If you have them read, they're mostly focused on reading, like a third grader would be. And so when they hear it, it's just so much better uh, for their understanding. And uh, we're continuing teaching. Um, on our river system, there's five major villages. And then on the road, there are 90-some villages. We've primarily worked on the river system. Uh, we divide teaching into four phases. Uh, on the river, almost everywhere has gotten up to phase three. And on the road, some places have received up to phase one. And we do have believers in both locations, on the river and the road. And uh, discipleship, these are all guys who are very near and dear to us. These are people who are burdened to reach their own, and so uh, we try to hang out with them as much as possible. Um, in the top left, that's uh, one of the guys doing a baptism. Top right was the first big conference that we had. Um, the, the bottom left is uh, us translating some stories for kids, and the right was during a, a meeting where uh, our friend Tapakwadi was praying. So, you may have heard from Tom and Patty over the years that we've been doing well projects, and I wanted to put some context, like why are we doing that? Um, it's, it's hard to explain the context there, because you're in the middle of the jungle, and it rains pretty much every day, and you're on rivers, and you can't get away from water, yet you don't have drinking water uh, because of, of that. Their water source is the creek. Their bathing source is the creek. Their bathroom is the creek. Where they wash their dishes and their laundry is the creek. Now, ironically, they do that very well. They separate their locations, and so they are very good at having designated spaces uh, to keep from getting contaminants from people. However, as their population has expanded, in the 80s it was near 200 people, and now in 2020, it's over 1,600 people in our region. And so their population has expanded. Villages are now on top of villages. And so the risk of contamination from a village upstream is very real now. Um, the other thing is in the jungle, you have animals. <laughs> and so one of the most common illnesses there is because of uh, things like amoeba or giardia or uh, any of those waterborne diseases. And so access to potable water is very important. It's something that we actually faced when we first got there. The wells dried out. We needed water. We were pumping from the creek. Um, and so that's what started all of this. What that looks like. Except about four more days of that. So <laughs> your ears go numb after a while. Um, so far, we have dug wells at both of the missionary bases in the interior, in Tukanodoyes and Atabazi Hamasu. And then in the greatest community up our river system of Urereta, we've dug a well at the village center where the school is, at the chief's uh, portion of the village, and then at another section that we call Aza Azul. And then in 2019, we dug the sixth well in a village downstream called Kana'a. So, 
future possibilities for wells. If you look at this map, uh, yeah, you can see it. The yellow dots on the right are, uh, that's the missionary base, that's the missionary base on the road, that's where we dug the three wells in the village, and that is our next project. So what the YMP indigenous leaders have asked we do is consider targeting the strategic locations, places that have, for some reason, a lot of illnesses. And if you look at it, these places are stinking far away. So how in the world can we consider you know, doing those um, locations? I'll get to that in a moment. In the greater region, we have started to receive tons of requests. Once word got out that there's a crazy group of people digging wells in the Amazon, um, five other missionary teams have requested wells dug in their locations. Three other indigenous groups all over Brazil have asked us to dig wells in their villages. We've received three requests from government officials to dig wells in locations that they can't get to for some reason or not. So understanding the history of indigenous politics and how the gospel has been barred from getting into places for so long, suddenly we're having the government come to us and asking us, can you go to this location? So we've been looking at this wide-eyed, like this is a massive opportunity to get our foot in the door. You know, once we establish relationships, we can ask to come back. And when the indigenous let us, the government can't prevent us from going in again. So these are really, really big opportunities. Um, right there is the YMP reservation. Uh, we have other ethnic groups here. Uh, this group asked for us to put one in. There's a missionary team there, there, there. My cousin works over here, and he said there's at least 10 villages that we could just start at immediately. So the need is tremendous. So what does it take to pull off a project? So I'm coming up on the second village on the river system. I'm going to pick up a local guy, and uh, hopefully by the end of the day, we'll be up another five waterfalls, and we'll be at the Vudarita community. First big waterfall. Gotta take all the stuff out of the boat on this trail. Probably about 150 meters. Put all these logs crossing the trail like this so that we can push the boat up. The boat slides on top of the logs. Less friction than on the dirt.
center. We'll take everything out of it. And we're at the second waterfall. <laughs> so, it's crazy to think, you know, this is waterfall too, but just to get to the main community called the Buddha Dita, I go up five waterfalls, and then it's another all-day hike to the last village where we're going to put in a well now. So whenever they have a medical emergency, they have to do this whole trip down to get help. Coming up on number three. This one's not a very big one, but certainly can't drive up it. Take out the motor. <laughs> it needs waterfall. Here we are coming up on the last one. And unfortunately, this one we actually have to drag the boat up in the middle of all that. First, we're going to take everything out. This one sucks. Just a little bit. This is where it'd be nice to have a dedicated film crew. Here we've got Rambo putting the motor on. Finally coming up on the last waterfall. afternoon around four o'clock so wanted you to watch that painfully long four-minute video what took eight hours for us to do so that you can understand the significance of this next slide we um, were approached by an aviation agency on our first project right when we were setting up the project and they asked us do you have anything that we can help you with and <laughs> once you see that video you understand the significance uh, we have roughly a thousand pounds of gear uh, for the rig and then we have all of the gear for anyone involved on the well team and then all of our food that we have to transport for every project and if you take a look at the map so I'm coming up on the second here we go um, we did the close ones right here. And so when we talk about doing future projects, the only way is once we get aviation completely ironed out. And uh, Tom can tell you it hasn't been a smooth ride. Uh, the process of figuring out aviation in the Amazon jungle is extremely complicated. Uh, that helicopter was the first time that type of helicopter was ever used for missions in the Amazon jungle. So it's a learning process through and through. But 
you know, we have all of those villages in the YMP reservation and then all of these other reservations, um, which it's going to be through aviation. And so one of the things you can pray for is our partner in Brazil, Helivida. They are just getting started in all of this. And with all of this activity, they are now being promised helicopter after helicopter. There's one in Sweden, there's one in Africa, there's two in Brazil that are being promised because people saw that activity there. And it's funny when uh, we look at how much it takes, you know, to accomplish a project like water. It's really, really easy to ask the question, why go to all that work? You know, why do we spend hours and hours and thousands and thousands to accomplish something like water? You know, why don't we use those same resources? Why don't we use all of that manpower and time to do something else and uh, that's a really, really good question, and it's one that is worth a good answer. Why do us missionaries spend so much time on things like medical? Why am I developing agricultural projects? Why are we focusing on all of these areas that some people might consider humanitarian or, or social work instead of exclusively what we say spiritual? The question is, you know, are we losing focus so to answer that question, I want to tell two stories. Um, and I wrote these stories a while ago, so I'm just going to read them. It will be simpler to uh, relay all of the information. Uh, the first is uh, Turu. We're always planning. We organized a Christmas, a Christmas teaching event for the YMP in 2015, and it went really well. Well enough for us to uh, reevaluate our strategies to adjust for the progress that we were seeing among YMP believers. One of our primary goals is to see that the believers are involved in organizing their church and events like these. With events with over 100 people can be really complicated uh, to accomplish in the jungle. It involves transporting, hosting, often feeding multiple family clans at our base for extended periods. The good thing is that we had already done the same event the year prior, and we were ready to do it again. So in September of 2016, I talked with two different groups of believers separately to explain that we wanted them involved in the planning for this next event. Both groups are excited. However, they expressed the same exact concern, that during the last event, so many unbelievers had come and caused problems. The unbelievers went out drinking, and they returned at night and caused a huge ruckus. They didn't contribute to providing food. They even endangered uh, children and a pregnant woman by driving the boat in the dark at night. They were basically just freeloading because our invitation was too open. Anyone could come. Considering their concern and our goal of having them involved in the planning, we asked that they invite who they wanted. So the believers had talked to us about inviting people who were truly interested in hearing about God. So it sounded like a good plan. Being a semi-nomadic hunter-gatherer society, planning and preparing are just not things that the YMP ever do. Uh, their life's experience has taught them it's best to improvise and respond to situations as they happen. So days prior to our Christmas event, no one had been invited. Our experiment of having the believer's plan had failed. Nobody was coming. So last minute, everyone agreed that we should open up the invitation to everyone again. They passed the news along on the ham radio. We jumped in the boat and later the truck to visit several villages without radio to see if anyone would still come at such short notice. Many people wanted to come. We set up a transportation schedule involving the three missionary vehicles, our two boats, to move everyone from the road up to the river to get to our jungle base. We filled up the five YMP huts and our two guest homes at our base with over 100 people. 
all wanting to hear more about God. Disaster averted, last second. Throughout the week, missionaries coached the believers as they taught through the Christmas story. And after a week of meetings, we started taking everyone home. As I drove the last truckload of people back to their village, I was already anticipating the much-needed rest to our successful event. Everyone jumped out of the truck. We said our goodbyes, and as people walked away, we noticed a young YMP man sitting on a bench nearby watching us. So we went over to talk to him. What he said left our heads spinning. He said his village was so sad that we hadn't let them come to the event. His father-in-law, Tudu, is the chief of a village and had wanted to come in 2015, but just didn't know how. So this year, when he heard, he asked the believers if he could come, but they told him he could not. His village was being excluded, and he didn't know why. Later, when we found out, when he found out that we had opened up the invitation to everyone who could make it, they were excited. His family would finally have the opportunity to attend the teaching. They prepared their food for the week in order to not be a burden on anyone else. They packed up their things. They hiked to the edge of the road where we would meet them and waited to be picked up. But when the missionary truck passed, arrived, it just passed right by. It didn't even stop to talk to them. Round two. This man's story was so horrible to hear because after we had made such a big effort to transport everyone, include everyone who wanted to be included, and though it was no direct fault of our own, our profuse apologies would never be understood. could never be enough. And since there's no rules about celebrating Christmas twice, <laughs> we had a second event. We made travel plans. We picked up Tudu and his village. We took them to the base. The believers who had taught the first round um, now had practice, so they taught through the Christmas stories and even portions of John. Several people in that meeting gave their testimonies, including Tudu, the chief, Three people were baptized, professing their faith publicly to the community. In the meetings, Tudu expressed how he now finally understood God's message. Tudu's story is one I'll never forget. A few years before this meeting, he had uh, some health problems which resulted in him getting an emergency surgery. During the surgery, he technically died and was revived. But he tells his people stories of how his spirit had left his body and was going up a very narrow path into the sky and he arrived at heaven. However, there was no door for him to enter. He was not allowed inside. But for some reason, he was sent back into his body. Before the surgery, he wasn't interested at all in hearing what the missionaries had to say, but now he had realized that his eternal destiny was in jeopardy. There are no missionaries living near Tudu's village. We had no plans to teach where he was. And despite the New Testament being printed and distributed in 2015, Tudu couldn't read, so it was little help for him. In 2015, when we got there, I had given some audio Bibles to believers on the road, and we didn't even know it, but one of those audio Bibles had made it into Tudu's hands. His family said it was because of listening to that audio Bible that he began to be interested. It sparked his desire to know God, and it certainly motivated his insistence to come and hear the full story. During the meetings, we prayed over Tudu because he was going to have a high-risk follow-up surgery. He and his family were very worried for him. Three weeks later, Tudu died from complications following his surgery. And I believe Tudu is now in heaven.
The troubling part of this story for me is how many times Sudu was left out of attending the meetings. On three different occasions, he was excluded. First, when the believers overlooked him in their selection of people. Second, when he was asked for himself and denied on the radio. Later, when he packed up his whole family and sat on the side of the road only to be passed by, excluded again. There's several complex reasons, logistical reasons, why uh, the believers had left him out and even why the missionaries had inadvertently left him out. Um, He hadn't attended other teachings yet. He couldn't pay for his transportation. We didn't have enough room for everyone. But even then, God had made a way for him to come. As missionaries, we've realized just how intentional we have to be in order to reach the lost. And even with all of our planning, some people can still fall through the cracks despite our best intentions. The truth is that it's God who saves. A man born deep in the jungle... He lived his whole lifetime away from the gospel or anyone who knew it. He was so far away from all the spiritual wealth that we have here, all of our commentaries, our devotional book, all of our translations, far from all of our churches, pastors, radio programs, and even the very missionaries that were sent to reach his people would end up failing him. But God didn't. It's God who saves I didn't realize it at the time, but just being willing to make an extra trip could be so important for someone's eternal destiny. I didn't realize where Tudu was in his journey. I didn't know him. I didn't know his story before all of that. We put the pieces together as it happened. We didn't know what exactly would make a difference for his eternal destiny, but God did. one more story that I want to read. You know, going back to that, that question, you know, is it, uh, is it worth it? Why don't we focus on just these spiritual things? Why don't we use all of our time to maximize the teaching and translation and those things? all of our medical, all the money involved in the well projects, all of those things, is it worth it? And that's honestly a question that I find myself always asking. And I'll close with this story. So is it worth my effort? Over the years here in Brazil, this is a question I found myself asking over and over. Is any of this worth it? Does my work make a difference? Is it worth my sacrifice? A year ago, I found myself asking this question sometime around midnight in the dark, driving up a river located nearly 200 miles into the jungle all by myself. No one else where I'm at chooses to drive the boat at night, uh, especially not alone, but I find myself always up for the challenge. What I tell people is that driving at night with limited visibility is just like driving during the day if you're focusing on what you need to and not everything else. So you focus your flashlight just on what you're looking for to navigate and ignore all of the peripheral vision, or else you'll be overwhelmed by a very dark jungle. Earlier that day, five YMP couples had come downriver to get help for their five infants. They did that trip that you saw in that video. They were exhausted from an all-day trip and were concerned about their babies. Uh, No ambulance was called to meet them downriver, so if they continued, they would be stranded until the next day before help could be mobilized. They arrived at our base just before dusk, and our nurse was able to listen to the five babies' lungs. Each of them were under a year old. They had heavy congestion in their lungs from a prolonged virus. 
Their medical situation was far beyond our ability to help at the base, and we only had antibiotics for one child. And so we could start antibiotics for one of the five, but how do you choose? Some of these parents had already lost children the years past in literally the exact same situation and had buried their babies at our base. It was already late, but I knew if, that, if I took the patients immediately to the medical outpost that they would be attended at least 12 hours sooner than, the parents, than if the parents had traveled down the next day. So if there was ever a moment to be willing to do whatever was necessary, that was it. And besides, I'm the guy who drives the boat on the river at night, right? <laughs> We all loaded into the boat, uh, went an hour down river to get to the truck. Uh, once the five women and their babies were inside the truck, all of the men jumped in the back of the pickup, and for another hour and a half, I listened to those infants struggle for air as their mothers uh, watched helplessly. Their feelings were on their face, completely powerless to do anything about the situation and the memories of the years past where all of their efforts of going down the river to make it to the missionary base wasn't enough. No doubt, those memories in their mind. Upon arriving at the government health outpost, all five of the babies were diagnosed with severe pneumonia and rushed to the hospital immediately. So once the government official said I could go, it was time to head home alone. Uh, dark, dark thoughts and dark places. I've had many trips like that before, um, snake bites, broken arms, emergencies during child labor. And that specific trip was especially moving to me, uh, considering that it was five newborns. And God had recently just given us our first daughter, Mila. So physically and emotionally, I was exhausted. I found myself seriously questioning God as I navigated the river in the dark. It was raining, uh, which makes it really difficult because the light reflects off the rain and is the, the flashes of light immediately in front of your face make it so that you can't focus on anything further in front of you. And so I was going really slowly, uh, going along the bank, and um, frequently bumping into trees and branches. And I saw something white on, on the edge of the water. So I thought it looked like the belly of a fish. So I you know, took the motor and, and uh, got up close to it. Uh, I grabbed my machete to see what it was. And as I poked it... <laughs> You know, low visibility, can't see very well. The large anaconda just started moving around the tree. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> but that was suddenly the wake-up moment. What in the world am I doing? Like, who does this? Who is put in this position where they have to say, is it worth it to take five kids? They have to say, is it worth it to be in a position 200 miles into the jungle at night on a river? And I was asking God if that was why he sent me there, thinking, I can work so hard to save a life, but if I don't save a soul, then my efforts are pointless. That if my boat sank for some reason right then and there, that it wouldn't really make an eternal difference for the YMP. So those are some very dark thoughts for a very dark place. And uh, God's response to my thoughts as I traveled on the river uh, were very, very similar to the logic that I use when I brag to my coworkers about driving at night. I can work so hard navigating the dark places in life, directing my focus to see specific spiritual results. I can resist being overwhelmed by all the things on the peripheral, the things that I see and the things that I don't see. But if I focus just on what I need to, that small little area, 
that he illuminated in front of me, that after navigating through struggles and perils, that eventually he'll lead me somewhere, and it'll be worth it. Sometimes not for me, but for those five kids, for God. God's been working in the heart of every single one of those parents. And I'm still willing to go to whatever lengths to value life when others won't. And isn't God actively doing the same for their spiritual lives? Quite plainly, what God was saying to me right then was, save the life, I'll save the soul. Working there uh, over the last several years has convinced me that I'm not the one working to a specific end. God is. I don't always understand what he's doing, since I don't always get to measure the spiritual results. But if he asks me to do it, then I will. At any cost, my sight can be so limited, but my God is not. If he's revealed just a little bit in front of me, then it will be enough. I've thought back on my questioning heart over and over. What a fair, safe thing to ask. Are my efforts worth it just to save a life, just a life? How is it that in our Christian circles, in our churches, in our organizations, that in our efforts to reach the world, we can start becoming so out of focus to think that our effort to save a life should come second to our effort to save a soul? Have we forgotten that it's God who saves the soul? Are we not ignorantly and sometimes arrogantly putting ourselves in God's place to judge what we should and shouldn't do with our efforts to affect things that we are powerless to change. Someone's eternal destiny. Am I more noble than God with my decisions and what I do? If God says to do it, then who am I to question its merits? Are we not missing the pattern of Christ's ministry where time and time again he met a physical need? which led to a spiritual encounter, a life's reckoning, and a restoration to fellowship with God. How foolish was I in that moment to focus on what I thought was immense personal sacrifice just because I couldn't see the results in those moments, in those very dark places. But now we can obviously see that God is at work in the YMP community. People are drawing near to him as the truth has been taught by missionaries and now by the YMP believers themselves. There's over 90 YMP villages, and every chief there knows my name. They frequently get on the ham radio or send people out to talk to me. Why? Because they have a need for water. Some of them are the same indigenous that were poisoned against us in the past. Some of those people have threatened our missionaries with death if we ever took the gospel to their village. And now... They're seeking us out because of a simple need for water. No, we didn't actually ask for this project. Someone sitting in the pews of your church took pity after seeing a, wife, uh, a video of my wife carrying buckets of water from a creek. They answered God's prompting in their hearts to go to a foreign country, build a portable well rig for people that were strangers to them. And at that same time, an aviation agency sought us out and asked us if we had any needs. So none of this was pursued by our desire, but God simply putting the pieces in front of us. He was equipping those he was calling. So
So, you know, we, we do ask that you continue to partner with us. Um, all of the ministry is continuing. Uh, COVID just has it on uh, a semi-pause. One of the things we did not expect is that uh, without access to the missionaries, all of the believers that we were training to teach and who didn't have the confidence to teach in our absence, they're all having meeting in, meetings in their villages. And so it's been really a blessing for us to take a break and see them take it on. So you can continue to partner with us by praying. You can pray specifically for those believers who are learning to teach, those four guys that you saw in the picture. You can pray for us that uh, you, God will give us strength and that he'll give us focus. Uh, you can continue giving. All of our expenses are covered by churches just like yours, just like the Boshers. We raise all of our funds from people um, and churches just like yourselves. And uh, lastly, if you do feel like going, Tom and Patty keep coming down, so uh, come on a trip with them. So it's been a pleasure to share just a little bit of what God has done in the last couple years with the YMP people. Um, hope to get to know you guys better, and uh, thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you, Jason. Um, at a lot of different levels, uh, you know, we heard um, stories of what it is that uh, God has led you to do, and then the question that you ask, um, you know, is it worth it? And uh, I think that's a question that we all can ask ourselves in terms of following Jesus and what that looks like and the things that He calls us to do. I, I thought of the words of um, Ephesians four one. Um, as you shared that and some of the things that you shared at the end, and it's simply this, uh, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And I want to thank um, the Lord on behalf of uh, you and Christina for living a life that's worthy of the calling you have received and, and for all of our missionaries. You know, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, we have a unique uh, privilege and opportunity to partner with people in places that we can't go and then to be Jesus Christ outside of, of our own doors. And that's what, that's what God asked, focus on that, um, to not look too far ahead like we're going down a river, um, but then to rise up and be worthy. So I just praise the Lord for all that that means for this body of Jesus Christ and our partnerships and in the lives of the missionaries that we support. Now, would you take a moment and pray with me before we give an opportunity to give? Lord God, I thank you for Jason and Christina, for others that are there. I thank you for the four men um, and the way in which they're, they're learning about you, being discipled and then proclaiming the gospel and how you have taken an opportunity through water for them to speak into the living water, you, and how you bring life forever, not just for a day, not to quench a thirst, but Lord, to quench the, the thirsting of the soul. And so I just give you praise for that. And I pray that you continue to bless their efforts, uh, bless their time here before they go, um, but then as they, as they leave again. And for all of our missionaries, um, I, I thank you for all of them and for the privilege and opportunity that we have uh, and the focus that we have on it in this mission conference, O oh Lord, so that we would simply bring you honor and glory um, in ways that we could never dream possible simply because of your goodness and grace, because you knew and that you never gave up, and that you were always there, and you always will be. 
In your holy and precious name we pray it. Amen.